Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Radical Thoughts podcast. In this episode, we discuss the book Aesthetics and Politics, a collection of writings featuring contributions by Theodore Adorno, Walter Benjamin, Ernst Bloch, Bertolt Brecht, and George Lukács. Right now, you're listening to 22 Ghosts 3, but in a second, you'll hear Andrew and I discussing expressionism, realism, the role of theory, practice, and more. This seems like one of the more engaging reads that we've had of some of the texts in this series. I don't know if it was just from reading a lot of dry stuff and being in grad school that it was kind of just refreshing to read these more polemical, personable like responses between various figures about aesthetics. But I, I, I enjoyed reading this one. I agree. I mean, there's a diversity of forms collected in the texts because unlike some of the um, other texts in this series that are uh, uh, books or largely collections that the the authors themselves have overseen, this is um, uh, a very deliberate, very carefully thought through editorial project uh, done by uh, people associated with uh, uh, New Left Review or New Left Books in the 1970s. So it's, it's largely prepared by uh, Perry Anderson, Francis Mulhern, and uh, Rodney Livingston, uh, taking a bunch of uh, texts from uh, uh, key uh, thinkers of uh, uh, modernism and aesthetics in the early 20th century. So we've got some real heavy hitters like uh, uh, Adorno, Benjamin, Brecht, uh, Bloch, uh, Lukács. And the types of texts that they include range everything from like Benjamin's private diaries to letters between Adorno and Benjamin, and also like polemical texts that uh, Bloch and Lukács uh, exchanged with one another in one of the uh, theoretical journals of the German left at the time, I think. Um, and then, it, then it's polished off by um, a really fascinating conclusion by uh, Frederick Jameson that was written in the in the 70s uh, where he discusses each of the included texts pretty um, thoroughly and uh, offers some uh, thoughts about uh, what this realism and modernism debate uh, looks like uh, in I guess a sort of po- what you would call what he calls post-industrial society or late capitalism, um, and you can see some anticipations of uh, Jameson's work later on, uh, especially his uh, book on uh, postmodernism that, that comes across here. Specifically, the conclusion, yeah, it has a it, it it concludes very much in my mind the same way that the at least the original the essay on. Postmodernism concludes with kind of the foreground, like the forerunner to his whole thing about cognitive mapping or remapping, which is which is in and of itself sort of a prelude to this sort of you know capitalist realism point. It is interesting seeing how all these debates relate to each other, especially when they're actually quite spread out in time. Um, 
you know, especially like it can, it has the first couple with Block and Lukash is, you know, prior to the war. Um, I mean, I mean, most of them are prior to the war, but that one in particular is like really feels like it, it's a debate about this kind of, you know, po- directly post World War One modernist, you know, expressionist tendency. Um, and then with a the the final ones is you know Adorno after the war responding to Lukash and Brecht. Yeah, no, uh, the 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 one on Lukash it was published in sixty uh, one, and the one on Brecht was yeah. published in sixty five. So in in a certain sense, he's responding to uh, a completely different uh, Brecht and a completely different Lukash because after the war, uh, you know, you see the. Uh, the, the uh, establishment of East Germany, where uh, where Brecht started to uh, be much more um, active and much more uh, well received for his theatre, and then uh, Lukács going back to Budapest after being in in, in Russia, I think. Um, and there is, I mean, there are shifts in uh, both of their works at the time. So Adorno is really, I mean, it, it, it's. This is one of the things that uh, Jameson brings up, that uh, the stakes of this debate between uh, realism and modernism uh, were, were very different before the war than they were after the war. And any kind of Marxist aesthetic theory shouldn't kind shouldn't reify a particular way of doing art as... Um, always progressive or always revolutionary it needs to be situated within the wider historical social conjuncture uh, itself and so having having the, the juxtaposition between these uh, uh, pre-war writings and uh, and some of this uh, post-war writing is uh, pretty fascinating it's, it, it's also kind of interesting reading this one where uh you know, we're, we're going to have another Jameson book on Adorno after this. Um, but everyone with the exception of Brecht has a book in the Radical Thinker series. Um, because there's a fair amount of Lukash. Uh, Block has one of the more recent books. They have, the, you know, the original Benjamin uh, book on Germany. And then they've got several things by Adorno, I believe, some of his music theory stuff and some, I think, another writer. And, and of course, there's there's plenty of books that are are even more commentaries on a lot of these figures in the books that we'll be reading as well. So it's it's kind of is a it is a good little thing to like have all these figures engaging with each other up front. As we like start kind of seeing more of them moving forward, I think. Uh, of them, I think the only one that I haven't read basically anything by actually is Lukash. I haven't read a whole lot of, like, I don't think I've read a full essay, let alone a book by Lukash. I've more just seen him pop up in other works and discussions. So it was interesting reading him because he's in the first debate here. It was interesting reading him because it's it's Lukash right at a time where he kind of is you know moving into his his focus on aesthetics again. You know, it's after history and class consciousness. It's after you know revolutionary Lukash, as they say, and 
it's sort of when I feel like this this is the Lukash who kind of develops a reputation for being this kind of having this stuffy aesthetics because his focus on on realism, which is politically tied to, you know, the popular front and the defense of, you know, the socialist realism of of the Soviet, you know, state. But at the same time, like reading him, and as we get into the debate between him and Bloch, it, it, there is a weird feeling that Bloch, Bloch is the kind of defending art that I find more interesting. And I think he's presenting some good points about it. But Lukash is, I think, he he does have a feeling of being a little more like theoretically, I don't want to say like deep, but you get the sense that he is sort of trying to be like, no, I, I've got to construct a rigorous theoretical defense of this rather than just talk about, you know, a smattering of, of of this or that work of art. Like Bloch has this feeling of he's going like, oh, people are just misrepresenting some of this. They're not understanding the power of, you know, these kind of earlier forms of resistance too in in folk art and things, which is which are good, but it doesn't feel like he's developing as as strong of a kind of fully theoretical thought out defense aesthetically of certain things. And Lukash is defending art that I don't necessarily find what his aesthetics are to be as convincing or interesting, but he he has uh, um, an interesting like attempt to actually kind of build a wider theoretical aesthetic framework for what he wants. I, I was also just surprised, like given that he's kind of known at this point for for our postmodern age, he would be considered quite kind of stuffy. I think his his style of writing was like more lucid than I expected. Yeah, no, it does seem like a pretty fierce exchange when you get it down to it. And you're totally right about how um, Lukács seems to be formulating a much uh, grander Marxist theory of aesthetics and literature. Uh, one of the criticisms that Bloch levels at Lukács is that uh, Lukács seems very uninterested in looking at specific works by uh, different expressionists. And almost seems like he's not really reading any expressionists very carefully uh, at all. Uh, and Lukash kicks back like, "I'm not really interested in these look, analyzing these uh, individual works or doing this kind of content analysis. I'm trying to elaborate uh, general principles, trying to find, um, trying to identify what is the progressive uh, trend in literature today that can." Uh, form the basis of a, a, a popular art and he seems to locate this in the form of the realist uh, novel uh, he thinks that the, uh, the the realist novelists are able to uh, establish the what he calls the proper dialectical relationship between appearance and essence between um uh, the, the appearance of the individual and its embeddedness within all of these different social relations. And what the realist novelist does uh, better than any other form of uh, literary expression is uh, demonstrate these relationships without the need for external external commentary. They're, they're not uh, writers that are trying to... that, that Sort of explain explicitly what why their work is political or what they're doing is political. It, it's already inherently there in the form of the work itself. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, I still feel very very fond of uh, Bloch's uh, defense of um, uh, of expressionism because 
it's, it's, he sees expressionism as a form of writing that tries to um, uh, capture or latch on to the uh, the fissures within um, uh, social reality, and in those cracks, try to find uh, find the new, find the surprising that can uh, hopefully contain some uh, a glimmer of revolutionary hope. I mean, after all. Bloch's most famous work is devoted to this theme of utopia, and he does see uh, the f- glimmers of utopian possibility in in these in these cracks in in the system. Uh, yet Lukács, um, although he does concede some points to to Bloch here, Lukács says that the, the, what this procedure does in expressionism is um, it's. It, how, how what this procedure does is it um uh, glorifies uh, immediacy it, it glorifies the the immediate subjective experience of this uh fragmentation uh without linking this immediacy to the the totality of uh, capitalist society as a whole and yes. this is this is what Lukács would want literature to do to show the interweaving of the immediate and the uh, and the totality. Because I, I mean, it's it's interesting thinking about this with you know the the future stuff by Adorno in mind because Adorno is you know in this weird position where he's he defends like very abstract you know like properly abstract art and non-realist art against Lukash, but he he also is someone who you know says you need like this thorough analysis of the totality you know when he grounds his account and he has his own kind of reinterpretation of like what the relationship between the kind of concrete experience of the art and its and having the art be itself a foregrounded kind of expression of contradiction um on its own terms that like then relates back to like what the abstract totality is um which is kind of like you know block is also kind of trying to do this thing about like the artwork is um drawing attention to to you know the experience of kind of the the contradiction the subjectivist the kind of subjective like breaks in in society in the work itself and like Lukash is that you can definitely see the kind of like Leninist principles that I think Lukash is like absorbing because his idea of like trying to weave the concrete and the abstract together is he he's he's doing it in a way that he wants to emphasize that abstraction and art should always be directed towards representing something about like the world which I think does tie into this kind of like Leninist and post-Leninist um, stand on, you know, like dialectical use of theory and stuff is is the idea of like human perception being a very like representationalist mirroring kind of one. So he kind of like that's one of the reasons why he he said, what does he say? He has like this part where he says, I, I have the the newer version i don't know if the page numbers are different on the 2021 with the ugly blue and white cover um but on page 35 he says quote it goes without saying that without abstraction there could be no art for otherwise how could anything in art have representative value but like every movement 
Abstraction must have a direction, and it is on this that everything depends. Every major realist fashions the material given in his own experience, and in so doing makes use of techniques of abstraction, among others. But his goal is to penetrate the laws governing objective reality and to uncover the deeper, hidden, mediated, not immediately perceptible networks of relationships that go to make up society. Since these relationships do not lie on the surface, since the underlying laws only make themselves felt in very complex ways and are realized only unevenly as trends, the labor of the realist is extraordinarily arduous, since it has both an artistic and an intellectual dimension. I'll end the quote there. So he, he gives some examples about giving artistic shape to these relationships that are uncovered intellectually and then, you know, um, are uh, like kind of transcending the abstraction. He talks about how you have to artistically like reconceal the relationships. So he, he definitely seems to like Lukash. Lukash has a very specific I, kind of conception of what reality is. And he want, he kind of seems to want art to move towards that reality in a way that even though he doesn't want to necessarily say that it's like a surface level rendition of reality. Yes, I mean, that, yeah, that, that, that quotation is really uh, hitting the nail on the head. And he, I mean, he does have some interesting remarks about the... Um, the nature of the avant-garde within, uh, well, and, the, and the nature and the purpose of the avant-garde within these revolutionary movements, especially around 48 and 49, on how one can't simply declare oneself to be uh, in the, the avant-garde or declare certain uh, uh, tendencies to be uh, to, to anticipate this revolutionary change, it can only for him. It seems like it's um, trying to. I mean, it's trying to figure out what what can serve serve that role, and it can only but you can only see it after it's unfolded. I think one of the things that's kind of hard to convey if you haven't read the pieces themselves, and it, it, even then, it can be still confusing if you don't know a lot about German politics at the time. Is like. There's, you know, like on page 48, Lukash, this is one of those points where he explicitly talks about how he's, you know, retracting his original statements from history and clash consciousness. And he's kind of using, in fact, his own experiences with the with the kind of like being in a revolutionary moment, and writing all this stuff. He, he's kind of using that as, in a way, a, a point of showing out, like, drawn into the the whirlwind of like revenue revolutionary moment and that's the the subjective revolutionary impatience which he attributes to that work and then he he justifies his like turn against it because of like the flow of history demanded that that was insufficient and in fact reactionary idealism and he's kind of trying to talk about you know that as a, a model in a way for being in an avant-garde moment or something but i think it kind of also begs the question of like is there a certain sense of avant-gardeism when it comes to aesthetic development itself, you know, th this is almost partially, I think, kind of what Adorno gets at is that kind of, you know, there's a there's a sort of autonomous avant-gardeism of the aesthetic that can't simply be justified as a avant-gardeism of politics. You could still make the claim maybe that like even if you declare yourself to simply be a member of an aesthetic avant-garde, that's only really determined by history or something. 
but it, there there's i think a, a one of the big differences is like adorno is saying like the political or social justification for whether something is aesthetically avant-garde is not necessarily that it directly you know serves the development of the like workers movement directly or something like that because it, it, it's something that is aesthetically avant-garde can be justified by you know potentially revealing something about the relationships of contradiction or failure if the workers movement fails or something you can't just say well the aesthetics weren't part of the avant-garde because it didn't support the workers movement the aesthetic you know contributions can in fact be justified by the fact that they represent you know the movement of the social totality within which those like failures occurred and I think that one of the other uh, broader contexts for this exchange between Bloch and Lukács, which we should discuss, is the uh, the adoption of the strategy of the the Popular Front, and how uh, that was linked to uh, you know the the, the uh, promotion of uh, a certain aesthetic styles, primarily socialist realism, as the right kind of aesthetic for. Um, uh, for the workers' movement, and the polemical exchange about expressionism almost functions as um, a kind of retrospective uh, judgment on on modernism itself, and uh, whether uh, the Marxist writers or Marxist theorists should see something to celebrate in modernism, or whether it should, or whether. They should go along with the the popular front strategy of uh, you know praising uh, socialist realism, and I think that one of the reasons that Lukash is seen as kind of uh, stuffy uh, as a stuffy figure is because of the, the, his firm conviction or his firm you know uh, belief that that realism is the is the mode of literature that uh, uh, really represents this. Um, uh, really represents this change in um, what should be done. No, not to jump ahead all the way to the end of the book, but I, I think it's kind of funny too, reading the conclusion by Jameson and, and kind of situing that also in the, the whole republishing this in the 70s, new left. It's like Jameson kind of like tries to frame this all as sort of around the potential for like popular front politics again in the way that the new left sort of adopted it which i don't know it, it, it's one of those things that it's kind of interesting that the aesthetics of lukash with the popular front are are the aesthetics of social realism so he's defending socialist realism against these you know expressionist or or abstract forms of art or non-realist forms of art uh but i, I think it's interesting to think about like in the new left in some examples or even movements today that pick up on this kind of like populist instinct, but they use what would actually have then be considered like avant-garde tendencies or forms. Like I, I, this is kind of like faded away somewhat now, but like, I think some of these things about, you know, more like festival communism, things like that, they actually don't politically sound too different from certain kinds of popular front in general, like ideas. The, the one thing is that they still have this idea of being so, kind of trying to be like a vanguard, but it's also this idea that if you can develop the right kind of like aesthetic involved form, then you can kind of like bridge all these social groups 
together to form a popular, you know, a, a popular movement that's not strictly dedicated to, to just the idea of the the pure, the quote unquote pure proletariat. I don't know. This was just something that was like bouncing back and forth in my mind was kind of like this, to what extent maybe it, it's something that you have to think about just the conditions of technological and artistic production and reproduction at this time, but something about the idea of these kind of like abstracted or non-realist forms of art being used now with no unifying party or anything with the idea of like trying to form like these populist political fronts through this kind of like non-realist aesthetic production and aesthetic styling. It is certainly uh, interesting to consider where that where the debate leads today because i often find that uh in like discussions of aesthetics there is often um a tendency to um declare oneself the the the, the new uh the new avant-garde or um try to offer some kind of uh, expressional or technique that is suddenly new, uh, more uh, sincere, more more earnest, or more um, uh, authentic. Um, I think that uh, one of the, I mean, w- 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 one of the the qualities that's often associated with uh, 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 realism, whether it's na- uh, naive or not. Uh, is that it's more it's more immediate it connects more to um how people uh see the world and um that this is something that is politically effective or uh useful and i mean I've, it's it's it seems like what is needed is not a kind of uh, sort of a, a populism or or a realism, but really a way of uh, grappling with uh, abstract abstraction, both on an, a, an experiential and also on a, um, a larger a, a totalistic level. Um, there, there, there does seem to be a little more um, uh, a, a, a failure to deal with abstraction that does um, uh, seem more evident uh, today, I think. I mean, maybe that's a good segue into to Brecht because Brecht's kind of response to Lukash is, you know, Brecht has his own kind of contradictory place in popular front politics at this time. Um, and he has his own ambiguous relationship to the Soviet state. Um, which, you know, also has his own development as he moves into East Germany, but after the war, but like he, cause he, he's, he's trying to kind of argue against, against Lukash on the basis of kind of that on the basis that sort of Lukash's theory doesn't really actually have much to do with the process of like actually creating aesthetic work itself. Um, and the the process of creating aesthetic works for an audience, and it, like kind of has that thing where he says, you know, there's not there's not just something being popular. There's the process of becoming popular, and he he kind of argues that there's not, you know, he he takes the stance that there's not really one aesthetic method 
as such. There's there's many methods that are utilized in accordance with what your aims as an aesthetic producer require. Yeah, I mean, he has some interesting criticisms of Lukács. Uh, I think one of the main ones is that Lukács concentrates far too much on the, the form of the novel and ignores other uh, literary forms or how uh, different forms can intermingle within the same work. Uh, he also Brecht also has that you know, uh, famous line of you know it's we shouldn't uh, start from the uh, good old days but uh, the, the the bad new ones uh, because he he sees um, Lukács's literary theory as relying too much from examples of uh, bourgeois novelists and Brecht is kind of skeptical about how one can uh, extract the principles of a socialist art from what was good about uh, bourgeois art. And he also thinks that the kind of uh, realism that uh, these novelists uh, presented is is now outmoded. It belongs to uh, a different time, to the late 19th century of uh, bourgeois society, not the kind of uh, mass industrial society that's rising up in the uh, early 20th century. And he's got this great um, description of what um, he understands as uh, as uh, uh, realism. Because he's obviously, as you said, really uh, much more interested in uh, concrete questions of aesthetic production, of what it means to, to sit down and start writing a work of literature. And it isn't uh, often this kind of mechanical application of uh, generic literary principles, but rather a kind of moment of uh, experimentation and, and tinkering around and going, okay, well, this this form will work here, that will work there. Uh, th- this is how I can uh, get this message across uh, in a particular way. But he describes, um, yeah, describes uh, realism as this: um, we must not derive realism from uh, as realism as such from particular existing works, but we shall use every means, old and new, tried and untried, derived from art and derived from other sources, to render reality to men in a form they can master. And the following two sentences are also good. This is on page 81 in my copy. Uh, We shall take care not to describe one particular historical form of novel of a particular epoch as realistic, say that of Balzac or Tolstoy, and thereby erect merely formal literary criteria for realism. We shall not speak of a realistic manner of writing only when, for example, we can smell, taste, and feel everything when there is atmosphere and when plots are so contrived that they lead to psychological analysis of character. Our concept of realism must be wide and political, sovereign over all conventions. So he he really places um, this uh, uh, emphasis on experimentation in uh, literary and artistic production. He he thinks that this should be um, the driving force of um, uh, of realism, of uh, of a kind of uh, revolution or socialist art, because yeah, he's interested in sort of breaking down that uh, that, that boundary between you know, purely intellectual work and more um, uh, intellectual work and I guess sort of productive or, or manual work. He sees the you know his kind of production as uh, something of a, 
a laboratory or a uh, a, a form of uh, praxis. It, it is interesting that Brecht, you know, constantly frames his own project as realist, you know, and he he himself has a lot of vendettas against other other sorts of kind of expressionist or or non-realist people. Like he doesn't like he he famously didn't like you know um, someone like Beckett. In part, which I, I think there's also political reasons because of this sort of sense of the theater as praxis for for Brecht that he, he he does have a sort of similar disdain for these works that he sees as not contributing to a view of like the problems and potential praxis of the world from the viewpoints of you know those who control it and those who suffer within it. I do think it is interesting that the, you know, the the introduction to the this section with Brecht and Benjamin talking about Brecht, the presentation does actually point out though that like one of the, one of the problems with the way that Brecht kind of presents his own approach is that if, if you're reading it and you just know Brecht as like oh Brecht he was this famous Marxist playwright and stuff, you're you're not going to catch that at the time of writing you know Brecht's most successful plays were performed for largely bourgeois audiences and were before he became more fully politicized. Most of his most famous stuff that's very heavily political and uh, with a Marxist kind of justification are written kind of when he's in exile and didn't really have, you know, this mass proletarian audience. And when they do have a mass proletarian audience, it's in the context of him being a, a, cele- a celebrity in East Germany, where his his stuff is getting produced basically with very little, little. It has very little of the kind of competition uh, that he would have been facing otherwise, because it's it's you know more like state approved art that is intentionally being promoted towards what is, are perceived as you know the proletarian masses of the state, like under the East German state. So the, the the presentation does kind of note that like Brecht Brecht is advancing his own his own attempts and work as this like example that like maybe he never actually lived up to in the way that you might think if you only know Brecht as you know this famous Marxist playwright who had method and 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 such um, the Benjamin stuff that that, that accompanies that is kind of interesting because it's mostly just like kind of diary notes. Um, it's not an actual conversation as such, though it, he he he's recalling conversations with Brecht. In this collection, I think the stuff with Benjamin is some of the hardest to parse through because a lot of it is so... Because th- this is, you know, all diary entries. And then the, the notes with him and Adorno are like three letters from Adorno on different stages of, uh, of, of his work on Baudelaire that's not in this book. So it's a, sometimes a bit hard to track what, like, what they're specifically kind of debating about because i think like some of the stuff that was more interesting in in benjamin's like diary entries on this was less anything to do with the aesthetics and it was more his like stuff where he's reflecting on the political situation and like some of the stuff where you can kind of see how interesting it is that brecht has more reticence about the soviet date than you might expect in his private conversations um and it, how it, it's interesting seeing how nervous he is about the direction of the Soviet state and then how he later goes to East Germany because he has all, there's all these conversations where they're explicitly talking about how, you know, it, you can't you can't have a one state socialist economy. Um, he has that bit where he says that 
by looking at the Gestapo, you can see what the Cheka might become. They do have their like debates on Kafka, but I didn't feel like they were as intriguing as I, I kind of would have hoped. They, they seem kind of cursory in these diary entries. You're right. I mean, there is sort of, uh, it does seem like there are <clears throat> things missing from the, uh, the, the diaries themselves. I, I mean, there, there is one of the entries where, you know, Benjamin's talking about a, a dream he had of, of uh, being in this massive labyrinth of stairs and then eventually falling down the stairs. And then he wakes up and then he goes to, then he goes to see, um, goes to see Brecht. Um, yeah, I mean, and you're right. I mean, he does, and, and Brecht seems much more um, anxious about what um, artistic life or critical life is like under the Soviet Union. I mean, there's that line that sort of uh, sort of sticks with you about uh, what he's saying, uh, and you know about uh, Lukács, and this is sort of linked to his complaints about Lukács not really uh, uh, grasping what artistic production looks like. Um, so this is this is phrased, this phrased as Brecht's characterization of uh, what Lukács and um, others are doing. Um, they are, to put it bluntly, enemies of production. Production makes them uncomfortable. You never know where you are with production. Production is the unforeseeable. You never know what's going to come out, and they don't want, and they themselves don't want to produce. They want to play the Arapat. Arab hatatric and exercise control over other people. Every one of their criticisms contains a threat. So he sees this. Uh, I mean, it, it, it seems like a th- throwaway line or a quip from from Brecht, but he does uh, imply that he sees the kind of criticisms that are coming from uh, Lukash as a kind of um, as these kinds of uh, uh, detached edicts from people who don't really understand um, how to. Uh, produce art themselves and so there's a sort of uh, a, a drive that's the role of the critic but but it, it linked to uh his uh his, his somewhat you know um ambiguous comments about the soviet union one of the interesting more aesthetically focused parts of the the, the bit with benjamin benjamin and brecht is the the concern with what it means to have didactic work which you know relates to what you were saying about how you know brecht wants brecht ideally wants work that kind of involves the proletariat themselves into the idea of taking up and art actively um but in the in the conversations you know you you kind of get a sense of some of the kind of doubts um about what exactly that uh, what what exactly that actually really entails um, on my edition on page ninety eight ninety nine, which is it's in the it's in the diary entry from the twenty seventh of September, it says um, while whilst becoming more closely concerned with the problems and methods of the proletarian class struggle, he has increasingly doubted the satirical and especially the ironic attitude as such. But to confuse these doubts, which are mostly of a practical nature, with other more profound ones would be to misunderstand them. The doubts at a deeper level concern the artistic and playful element in art, and above all those elements which partially and occasionally make art refractory to reason. Brecht's heroic efforts to legitimize art vis-a-vis reason 
have again and again referred him to the parable in which artistic mastery is proved by the fact that in the end, all the artistic elements of a work cancel each other out. It is precisely his efforts connected with this parable, which are at present becoming visible in a radical form in his conception of the didactic poem. In the course of the conversation, I tried to explain to Brecht that such a poem would not have to seek approval from a bourgeois public, but from a proletarian one, which presumably would find its criteria less in Brecht's earlier partly bourgeois-oriented work than in the dogmatic and theoretical content of the didactic poem itself. Uh, and then he's like, in the diary entry, he's quoting himself here, quote, if this didactic poem succeeds in enlisting the authority of Marxism on its behalf, I told him, then your earlier work is not likely to weaken that authority. We're turning again to like, on the one hand, there's this sort of like practical question of, you know, does the ironic detachment or the, the satirical detachment in the work produce the kind of effects that one wants? And then there's, but like Benjamin is also kind of like pointing back to this question of, is there something about the inherent theoretical position of the artwork itself that has to connect with the proletarian audience for 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 its like kind of justification you know and he, he's kind of saying like it doesn't necessarily have to be that it it directly just like says quotes marx or something but it, does it kind of have the effect based on the theoretical and dogmatic you know theoretical and didactic nature of the work itself which is not necessarily just from the perspective of like practically being practically like writing it with an ironic or satirical tone or something like that like the the nature of the theory of what play and activity and involvement is in relation to the theoretical kind of lesson of the work and then in the following entry i mean there is a uh, a brief anecdote about uh, Brecht's reflection of the other effects of uh, art, where he uh, even suggests that um, Benjamin is feeling unwell because he's uh, reading uh, Crime and Punishment. And that there's that a. Uh, uh, Brecht remarks that he, a friend once played him uh, Chopin and he ended up feeling um, uh, very ill. And so, yeah, I mean, it's also helpful just to have that kind of uh, uh, insight into the the personal idiosyncrasies of a figure like uh, like Brecht, because he seems like a pretty funny guy uh, who was probably interesting to hang out with. He's, you know, uh, but obviously thought quite a lot about uh, the the effects of literature. And I mean, we we have access to. Um, you know more of uh, Benjamin's personal documents in, in 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 the letters between him and Adorno in the in the following section, where yeah, as you said, there are three letters from uh, Adorno that are providing uh, criticism of uh, Benjamin's uh, various drafts, and then one uh, response uh, from Benjamin. And what one of I mean I I can only really um, understand or at least follow the uh, Adorno's letter uh, on the uh, world of uh, the work of art and its mechanical reproduction because I haven't read um, his piece on Kafka or Baudelaire for a long time uh, but I, I I remember some stuff about I remember you know some aspects of that you know the, the, his famous piece on uh technological 
uh, reproduction. And I, yeah, they, 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 it's it's a clash between. Um, I mean, although they share so much and they have so much uh, common, you know, uh, uh, theoretical ground, uh, it's you know, fascinating to see them dig into the the differences in their own uh, methodological uh, approaches. Because um, they they both had very uh, distinct backgrounds, and it, it's often kind of surprising, uh, considering just how much, uh, uh, how, just how uh, uh, much Adorno criticised Benjamin's work. That Adorno is uh, significantly younger than Benjamin, uh, but of course they grew up in very different uh, intellectual uh, milieus, and it seems that uh, Benjamin sort of grew up on well was. Uh, studying during the the, the time when um, uh, uh, post-Kantian philosophy was uh, more embedded in the German uh, university system, and uh, he obviously uh, lived in Paris and encountered uh, you know, uh, surrealism and various other forms of modernist art there. And Adorno's background is in is really in Vienna, where he uh, uh, delves into you know the uh, atonal music and, and, and psychoanalysis. And some of the disagreements uh, here have to do with um, uh, Adorno's sort of strict Freudianism and, um, uh, and Benjamin's uh, occasional leanings on uh, Jungian uh, con- concepts as a way of uh, figuring out, uh, as a way of um, thinking about uh, the socio-psychological um, uh, tendencies. A lot of it, it, it's hard to always follow through what exactly they're arguing about, not only because, you know, Adorno's conception of dialectics and, and such is already quite complex. So like sometimes when he, like the part where he's talking about, you know, Benjamin's idea of the dialectical image, it's sometimes like really hard to figure out what exactly, what parts specifically Adorno is like a, like, opposed to and how he wants it to be used because sometimes he'll say like i think that the idea is correct but you frame like the sentence is undialectical in the way that you establish it and that kind of stuff is just very hard to tell sometimes what exactly is being conveyed especially when you don't have the text being analyzed alongside um and the kind of further argument and then yeah then with any of these kind of interactions between them there's they're each drawing upon so many other philosophical figures and traditions like you know uh obviously adorno adorno's drawing on psychoanalysis which benjamin uses jung to discuss myth and and some of the stuff about kind of yeah like the the collective effects of images um though in general like i think benjamin was kind of less interested in you know like super thorough dive into psychoanalysis as such uh but also you know there's so, there's so many times where adorno is also talking about like you're discussing this thing which relates to my discussion of kierkegaard uh, uh and i'm like uh, i don't remember what you said about kierkegaard dude <laughs> like sorry but it, it it is it is interesting seeing like the differences but it's not always easy to like really tell what they're kind of getting at so sort of like what's the what's what's the big deal um of like what what is the uh what is the what is the difference here um 
I think that I mean they they do obviously have like very different uh, dispositions when it comes to like writing Marxist criticism because Adorno is all about saying it's got to be you've got you've got to thoroughly um, embed the study of these you know individual works through a mediation with the, the 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 total social process you've got to get to the totality and where whereas uh benjamin is um putting forward a sort of more uh monad to logical um approach of which he develops out of uh philology of looking at the the the, the singular and the, and the unique and seeing in that uh, the, the the connections that um, uh, uh, grow up and, and how it illuminates those different relationships, but Adorno finds some of the relationships that uh, uh, Benjamin focuses on, uh, such as like the relationship between uh, uh, wine duty in France at the time that um, Baudelaire was writing with his poetry as um, uh, 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 causally simplistic. Um, he doesn't think that um, you you can uh, establish um, or or t- talk about uh, social relations or material relations in capitalist society in this way. It needs to be uh, linked to the uh, totality of of capitalist society rather than this kind of causal link between um, what the art or, uh, author is writing and one historical or social thing that's happening mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, it's in a roundabout way, he's kind of actually accusing Benjamin of like a sort of economic reductionism in this yeah. sort of like, yeah, like prices go up, authors write about this kind of <laughs> yeah. position. Um, one of the things that complicates the the back and forth, too, is like one of Benjamin's defenses is that he kind of says like, well, you, you know, you're, you're seeing one part of what I'm hoping to be a fuller, a more full manuscript, and I'm kind of saving elements that complicate what i'm talking about for later so you're kind of seeing one end of the analysis um that i'm laying out which by 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 necessity can't be this kind of full all around dialectical everything at once kind of take and i mean one of the things that's interesting with the with the part on like the work of art in the technological the age of technological reproduction is you know the facet of on the one hand, I think most people know that part of the part of the disagreement is Adorno's more skeptical attitude towards any sort of like popular popularized uh, aesthetic project. You know, so he, he doesn't he doesn't kind of trust this sort of idea of mass reproduction in general. I think you also get that kind of interesting side to how, you know, Benjamin champions how the the aura of this independent art that is, you know, stuck in the museum and, and special because of its placement and because of its unique singular value, like uh, how that can be destroyed. And then through like mechanical reproduction and Adorno is uncomfortable with this in part because of his focus on the idea of like, actually art does need to retain like an autonomous power. And so he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to uphold like the idea of aura in in saying like, yeah, it's like artwork should be this bourgeois, like elitist thing that stays in the museum uh, and has this kind of like fetish character. But he, he, he's trying to 
kind of retain the power of like you you do have to respect the power of autonomous production of art and that uh, uh, autonomous production having its own relationship to you know society and the mediation that he he sees between the totality and the specific and uh, i mean quite like um lukash's critique of uh block kind of over exaggerating the political possibilities of uh representing uh a, a sort of subjective experience of uh the contradiction society uh adorno is very suspicious about uh benjamin's theory of distraction in the uh viewer of the uh technical work of art i think one of um Benjamin's big observations in that work of art essay is that uh, the moviegoer, um, when they watch uh, watch a film, uh, exists in a sort of in a state of uh, distraction, and that this um, that this this stance this um, this posture allows for um, uh, critical apprehension of the work of art, of a recognition of. The, the art work is something that is that that is made and being able to break it down into its components rather than a kind of mythical approach to um a traditional work of art that retains its aura and has this sort of mythic quality uh and adorno thinks that this idea of distraction is entirely wrong because um what benjamin is describing is not um someone who um is a, a, applying their critical powers to film but someone who's so exhausted from uh, a day at work that they are um uh, distracted by the film and he says that in um adorno says that in a properly you know uh, communist society people wouldn't have this kind of uh distraction in in art in a, in a communist uh society he writes um on page 123 for me um in a communist society work will be organized in such a way that people will no longer be so tired and so stultified that they need distraction and so he, he adorno sees in um Benjamin's more positive observations about uh technical art to kind of uh, over romanticization of um ways of living that are you know linked to uh, a capitalist organization of labor uh, once again adorno doesn't think that uh, benjamin is placing uh, these uh, experiences uh, within the context of the total social process within within the totality and so and so misunderstands them i think one of the interesting kind of themes that comes through that the Frankfurt, the first generation Frankfurt school are actually kind of known for um, that you see in this debate is the, they, they, they often have this point of how uh, Marxists and, and this is one of the things that they actually often extend to actually a critique of Marx himself is the, the focus on, you know, that liberated human activity to the point of like reifying or fetishizing use value itself this idea that like people are liberate liberation is when you strip anything um like if you like assuming that every commodity or every object or every form of art 
is mystified by capitalist relations in such a way that stripping away the capitalist context and the capitalist reification and fetishization will ultimately re reveal a more fundamental true usefulness um, to you know human activity and and this is something that Adorno really doesn't like um, and and in one of the earlier drafts he comments that he thinks that Benjamin's writings on the collector are a good a kind of good dialectical investigation of this because of the role of the collector is someone who in capitalist society values commodities and objects in a way that actually disconnects the use value aspect of the commodity from the exchange value um, because it's all about appreciating the the history and making and the kind of the content of the thing in and of itself without it being about how you will uh, then consume or or make use of it um, but he also criticizes Benjamin in some points because of I, I, he kind of he kind of suggests that part of why he doesn't like the whole aspect of aura being he, he doesn't like the idea that mystified aura should be directly linked to artwork being treated as autonomous because he thinks that it, it falls back into this idea that you strip away the aura by just making the work of art reproducible and useful to people in their in their own hands kind of which is, I think, one of the, the more difficult... This is just, in general, one of the more difficult aspects of the Adornian Frankfurt School project. That it, 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 Some interpretations of it are definitely the... that it's a, a, a partially a, a very Germanic reaction that he's trying to kind of dialectically maybe fight with Heidegger and stuff and trying to retain this idea of, like the prioritization of the world and the environment and such beyond human usefulness. Um, but he's kind of like without, without just reifying it into some sort of sense of just like sheer authenticity. And, and it's interesting to see it also as kind of like a, it's an aesthetic project that he's, he's trying to weave in there. Um, but it's, it's a kind of hard to sometimes figure out as ever with Adorno, it's kind of hard to figure out what it actually implies for uh, transform social relations or human like what like, like like how do you actually like live in this state in a way i mean i think that this is a good point to uh jump into the uh the following section because it does i mean they're, because they're both you know adorno texts there and he does seem to to uh to dwell on these questions uh further I mean, well, yeah, that, that it does seem that it ends up being the the core problem of um, Adorno's uh, theoretical project of the of how this um, uh, how autonomous art and how autonomy in in general can uh, provide that space of of resistance to a kind of totally administered society. And whether it can even do that, or what the um, what the point of of, of what how, how one could produce that autonomous art and then lead to some kind of social change after that. I mean, it's it's a it's a difficult problem. But he seems to think that autonomous art does this much better than a quote unquote um, a committed art can do. 
these two, these last two ones, maybe it's just because it's two pieces that are by the same author on other people. It's not like a conversation. Like they're just very, they're very dense uh, compared to, I think a lot of the, like even compared to a lot of the other ones. Um, I mean, with, with Lukash, I think it's a little bit easier with the context of the prior piece. It's a little bit clearer, like what Adorno's issues are even with all his, his very like kind of theoretical analysis. Um, this is, you know, this has that famous line where he says that, you know, quote, Lukash still behaves like a cultural commissar for all his dynamic assurances to the contrary, end quote. And Adorno makes the, the damning criticism that, that Lukash pays lip services to dialectics, but is not actually being dialectical. Really interesting parts is where he he talks a little bit about Lukash's emphasis on decadence as a as a social trend. A lot of people also associate Adorno and the Frankfurt School with this kind of like idea of like you know like modern society is is decadent or something, and you kind of get a a little commentary by Adorno on the use of this term and why he thinks it doesn't doesn't actually kind of reach a real substantive theoretical grasp on the, the issues of, of aesthetic um, expression in, in the modern world. And he kind of points out that, you know, this, that, that, that Lukash's own, own stances for all his emphasis on history and stuff, it, he loses any sense of like historical continuity between what he likes and what he doesn't like. The, the, the part on Brecht, I don't really know as much about Brecht at this period that he's like talking to him. And I also just haven't, Read enough like Brecht plays in some cases for the specific artworks that are like uh, the specific like pieces that are kind of being referenced. Uh, I, I only know some of those kind of more popular early ones, though. I, I, it's also interesting that with the the piece on Brecht, he's also replying to Sartre with with that question of the op- opposing the idea of autonomous art to the idea of committed art. Like he has this bit where he says, you know, it is this is on mine. It's page two of one quote the actual obligation a writer undertakes is much more precise it is not one of choice but of substance although sartre talks of the dialectic subjectivism so little registers the particular other for which the subject must first divest itself to become a subject that he suspects every literary objectification of petrification however since the pure immediacy and spontaneity which he hopes to save encounter no resistance in his work by which they could define themselves, they undergo a second reification. In order to develop his drama and novel beyond sheer declaration, whose recurrent model is the scream of the tortured, Sartre has to seek recourse in a flat objectivity, subtracted from any dialectic of form and expression, which is simply a communication of his own philosophy. The content of his art becomes philosophy, as with no other writer except Schiller. End quote. Adorno's dialectic actually does tend to have this emphasis on it's kind of related to the whole thing of like you don't you don't want to just reduce things to use values that his his uh, he often points to kant as being somewhat correct that like you have to have some sort of prioritization of the object which the subject encounters and the impact of the object upon the subject so he kind of critiques this committed artwork as as privileging the subject first and the subjectivity and the, this kind of sense of free choice that it has no 
obligation put on it by by objects which are encountered and he kind of notes that it sort of twists back in on itself well i mean he writes elsewhere in that essay that um art with a a message even when it's uh very radical is an accommodation to how people uh, how the subject is uh, already it's an accommodation to to the world as it stands and so it doesn't have any of this transformative uh, potential whereas the autonomous work of art does make these uh, uh th- does make a demand uh on the subject uh, subject it exposes the sub- a subject to something that's uh, you know radically different or or other and contains that you know uh, that potential for uh, transformation and in the way that the the committed artwork doesn't, the committed artwork only appears committed because it's uh, making the right gestures within the the, the context as it exists. Um, this is why I mean, he, he, this is akin to what he um, uh, writes about in Minimal Moralia, where he's talking about um, uh, how some socialist intellectuals have uh, a tendency to to glorify uh, to, to glorify the people uh, as they are um, as underdogs rather than um, uh, expressing or you know trying to encourage uh, them to you know uh, develop class consciousness or something. Um, it's, it's for, for, for him these kinds of like uh, I'm I'm really the champion of the people or these kind of populist gestures of creating uh, committed art uh, are ultimately self defeating because they are uh, based on the kind of uh, impoverished notion of of the people or the worker. This is uh, in a way a kind of interesting point that complicates like Adorno's own sort of famous snobbishness. Is that he he says uh, you know with some of Brecht's later works he talks about like one of the problems with Brecht is that he claims that he's like adopting the language of the people themselves. He talks talks about the theatricality of total plain spokenness. This he kind of reifies this idea of like the the folksy plain spoken proletariat that understands and speaks bluntly about their suffering. And we're going to put that on stage to help them realize, you know, their, their own kind of force. And like, in a way Adorno is kind of being like, actually, this is just in and of itself, totally like disingenuous. Like it's, it's a, it's a mythologization of of these kind of things. And it, he also connects it then to also, you know, the, this is where he has kind of an extrapolation on his whole thing about there's no poetry after Auschwitz. Um, which he he notes, uh, you know, like that at this point, Eisenberger made a famous uh, retort to this where he said, like, poetry has been, you know, made complicit, but we still need to act as if literature could resist the problem. And Adorno says, yes, this is actually correct, which I I always think that's interesting just because, uh, side note, um, Eisenberger is the is a very famous German, like intellectual uh, kind of a student of Adorno's. He's also the author of the book The Number Devil, which I think is like one of the only things he's well known for in, in, in English. I was like, really, that guy? I read that when I was a kid. Just, just fun fact. I always think that's funny. But uh, Adorno, Adorno kind of like extends like what his point is, and he sort of says that what it, it, in this period after Auschwitz, we see the problem of the consequences of trying to produce art about the suffering of victims 
where then you have a work of art that people look at and is based on suffering and people see the artwork and think, oh, this like this is the meaning of the suffering. So the suffering has been giving meaning. The victimization has been giving meaning through, you know, this committed kind of like artwork here. And and he has this part on my on mine, it's page 210, quote, for these victims are used to create something, works of art, that are thrown to the consumption of a world which destroyed them. The so-called artistic representation of the sheer physical pain of people beaten to the ground by rifle butts contains, however remotely, the power to elicit enjoyment out of it. The moral of this art, not to forget for a single instant, slithers into the abyss of its opposite. The aesthetic principle of stylization and even the solemn prayer of the chorus make an unthinkable fate appear to have had some meaning. It is transfigured. Something of its horror is removed. This alone does an injustice to the victims, yet no art which tried to evade them could confront the claims of justice. Even the sound of despair pays its tribute to a hideous affirmation. Works of less than the highest rank are also willingly absorbed as contributions to clearing up the past. When genocide becomes part of the cultural heritage and the themes of committed literature, it becomes easier to continue to play along with the culture which gave birth to murder. End quote. Like, I think that does actually get a more to a more serious point about the con like the controversy of like, can you just try to like proclaim yourself freely committed to a cause in order to like produce an effect on other people about suffering, you know, like in the name of people that are like, is there a process of transforming victimization into a kind of feedback into society that like justifies the victimization on the on the grounds of how it emotionally impacts those people that view the artwork that's supposed to be committed to them yeah i mean it's a, yeah it's a, i mean it's a, yeah the, a, a classic adornoian uh statement i think whether or not you like agree with him on his like theoretical grounds for this it it, it provides a useful contextualization of like why the Frankfurt School of people like Adorno and Horkheimer become so profoundly obsessed with the idea that, like, quote unquote, modern capitalism, this kind of, you know, what they see is this monopoly capitalism, post-war monopoly capitalism, like how they they frame it as, you know, the idea that the culture industry and co-optation is the fundamental kind of ideological antisocial like phenomenon. I mean, the, the opening of the Jameson conclusion is uh, pretty relevant to discuss. I mean, uh, talking about the 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 the, the, the dangers of uh, a, a post-Marxisms that end up uh, reviving uh, the traditional debates, and so it's important to um, reconsider the um, the discussions and exchanges and disagreements of you know, canonical Marxist figures like these to um, try and uh, make sense of our own uh, uh, conflicts about uh, uh, the relationship between uh, art and politics. Um, I mean, you see the, the, that um, you see that sort of impasse between uh, committed and autonomous art still playing out today. Of you know, uh, these essays give you plenty to think about. 
when it comes to that problem. Yeah, they are. They are kind of a, a, a neat little, you know, constellation of of issues and points and that. I don't know. I, I, I always struggle with this feeling of like I get into aesthetics and what aesthetics means about kind of perception and communication for the left. And then I get kind of tired of it because I do feel like it has these repeating circular arguments that don't go anywhere, drift away from it for a while. And then something makes me start thinking about aesthetics again. So I get pulled back and it kind of goes back and forth. But I feel like this was a good, a good text for kind of returning back to aesthetic questions and trying to see like a more, a more plain spoken attempt to be like, okay, these debates keep happening. Here's, here's an ex- a selection of these arguments. And that we can't, you know, uh, f- f- freeze the categories of the debates. And we, we even if, uh, the same tendencies do come up again and again. They need to be considered in light of the the, the historical uh, conjuncture. Um, what might have been the the, the preferable response or the, or solution in, in in earlier times might not be uh, the effective one now. Uh, I think that's one of the you know one of the good points that Jameson makes in in that uh, concluding essay is that when you're reading these um these pieces the the point isn't to uh take a side and go oh yeah i like bright fuck lukash um it is to uh try and situate those debates in 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 their own time and uh see how the um the, the reoccurrence of them in our own uh needs to be needs to be rethought needs rethought in conversation with these pieces but still needs to be uh based on a solid analysis of uh the world as it stands today that's all for this episode we only have one book left for season two in the collection that is late marxism adorno and the persistence of the dialectic by frederick jameson pick up a copy if you want to read along for the next episode I have someone who is interested in discussing Lukash for our next bonus episode, and I'm hoping to get into contact with them shortly about scheduling the next discussion. So hopefully that will be out soon. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.